Hello from the 2018 Equal Justice Conference in sunny San Diego, California. I'm Kimberly Sanchez. And I'm Jonathan Pyle. I'm Abhijit Chavon. I'm Angela Tripp. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. We're going to talk a little bit about the presentation that you made not too long ago um, on due process and ethics in the age of tech and innovations in the justice system. I got all those words in there, right? (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me first a little bit about who you are. Why don't we start with you, Jonathan? I work at Philadelphia Legal Assistance, a legal aid provider in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I'm the resident tech guru and also in management and administration. Uh, I've been doing a lot of automation of uh, things at the office, like factual research. I've been developing tech tools for clients. And I've been using artificial intelligence for a couple years on our main website, where people can come and type in their legal problem in their own words, and then artificial intelligence reads the words and uh, recommends pages of the website they could go to. So I have some experience with data analytics and AI, and I can so I can see where it's going and how it's going to affect our clients in the future. Okay, that's is tech guru in your title? Contract performance <laughs> officer <laughs> is my title, and aka tech guru. How many legal aid organizations have a tech guru? That would be a very a handful. <laughs> All right, Abhijit. Uh, hi, I'm Abhijit Chavan. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Urban Insight, and um, I have been working with legal aid programs for the last 10 years on various legal technology projects. I set up the Open Advocate platform with a suite of uh, open source tools for uh, legal technology projects. And your background's in architecture, right? Well, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is neat. And Angela? I'm the director of the Michigan Legal Help Program, which is Michigan's self-help website and self-help centers um, that help people who are going to court without a lawyer. I'm also part of our state support office and um, manage our statewide technology projects. And so um, I'm really more in the role of uh, being the liaison between the legal aid community and the, the hard technologists in our organizations. That is not an easy role, I imagine. And Angela and I sit on an ABA standing committee together. Yeah, the Committee for the Delivery of Legal Services. Yeah, so um, what's really neat about you guys and just listening to your backgrounds is that we have a, a, a good like representation, I think, of all of the different areas for basically helping the self-help sort of area, which is absolutely necessary in uh, this particular area. So let's talk a little bit about what you all talked about in your presentation, which I think is fascinating and really, really, really important for the legal aid community to sort of look at and embrace these guiding principles um, around ethics and technology. So tell me a little bit about how those were started and created and where we're coming up. Yeah, it's loud, isn't it? (laughs) 
So this idea um, came together at the Self-Represented Litigant Network in 2017, where Jonathan and Abhijit gave a presentation about artificial intelligence and how it's becoming more involved in uh, the work of not just legal aid, but the entire justice system. There's not really anyone governing this or policing this and how it, it is so complex. It's something that maybe we ought to think about. And so that's when we started talking about this project uh, and just seeing the emergence of the private sector becoming involved in um, technology projects in the justice system, not just in legal aid, but in courts and other places, we saw that there's, a, there's often a gap between the technology companies, the justice system actors, you know, who know the justice system principles, such as due process and things, and not always the two working together so smoothly. Sometimes the technologists don't understand the due process principles that we need to maintain. And so we wanted to, to do something to help bridge the gap um, between these two communities so that we could have more active voices in um, introduction of new technology into the justice sphere. Okay, so we're talking about basically when a new tool or something is introduced and then what are, what, what are we looking at as a community to make sure that we're doing all of the things in sort of the right way and making sure that our clients are represented. Is that right? When, when these new tools are adopted, they're typically adopted when a court or a government agency is approached by a vendor and the vendor offers a really great product and the court decides to buy it and then the vendor rolls out something that might be different from what the court intended and I, it's my position that legal aid should be getting involved in these situations and injecting themselves into these buying decisions because the court is not the court or the government agency is not going to have in-house staff who are experts on AI. They're going to have to rely on vendors, but somebody needs to be protecting the interests of low-income people, of the claimants, of the self-represented litigant, litigants in the court who will be impacted by these changes. And we, we've had some experience in the legal field of doing this with e-filing. When, uh, when courts were adopting e-filing, Angela was part of a project that put together a set of best practices uh, for for e-filing, and that that's what that was very successful. And now we're seeing courts and other agencies use artificial intelligence, machine learning, and predictive analytics in ways that we don't know what the effect will be. Uh, so we want to guide courts and other decision makers so they understand what these technologies actually do. They understand they're not magic, and how they can impact our clients and how we can uh, mitigate any harms to our clients. And Abhijit, from a technologist standpoint, like, why these guiding principles? Well, starting off with what Jonathan said, it's uh, that these are being deployed uh, quickly um, and it's, uh, we don't quite understand what they are doing. It's a matter of uh, what are they optimized for. We want to make sure that any new AI um, driven system that is deployed is optimized for the values of the community and not not only just for um, whatever the vendor has programmed into it. Okay. And so then I think maybe a little discussion about what these principles are, because it sounds like we just want everybody to get on the same page. That's absolutely right. And one of the things that we want to stress is that um, that this is not really a technology project or technology problem. It's really about the policies, which is why we're urging lawyers to get involved in this at all at all levels and at all um, aspects of the justice system. So 
we have four areas of guidelines and principles that we talk about and that you can see at our uh, website. Um, and the first one is um, talking about transparency, uh, transparencies of algorithms and when algorithms are in use, accountability, making sure that if there are problems um, or things that need to be corrected, the ways to do that are very clear. A third area is reliability, uh, making sure that the, the innovations are tested regularly for validity, evaluated, and required to demonstrate reliability based on feedback loops. And then the, the fourth that I think is most important is really um, about sort of due process principles, we call it by design, um, making sure the algorithms must not co codify human biases or structural racism or other biases. Um, the idea that representatives of all groups impacted should be involved in planning new systems. Um, that when considering improvements to legal processes, uh, organizations prioritize access to justice and due process at the same level as efficiency and profits. Um, often people are just really looking at efficiency and kind of lose sight of some other aspects. These are those pesky, uh, the pesky due, due process, process. right? <laughs> I think Jonathan said that really well. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and one of the, the, the other sort of big takeaways is that uh, we, we want to be involved in the implementation of these processes um, because otherwise uh, vendors end up dictating our court practices and policies by saying to, to organizations, oh, well, we can't do it this way. We do it this, we do it that way. And so, you know, all of a sudden the court practice has changed because of something that the vendor does. And, and that's not how our justice system works. Right. And sometimes that could really run afoul of what the ethics rules are, right? Because who's paying attention to that? And what are we going to do with these principles? What is the goal? Jonathan, what are, what are we going to do with these things? Well, I think first we need to agree on the principles, and I think that will lead to how they might be implemented. Uh, we might look at what's happening in Europe with the implementation of the GDPR, uh, where they are using top-down regulation to really dictate how businesses and even courts operate with respect to the data of individuals and giving individuals the right to be forgotten, giving individuals the right to object to the use of their data in automated decision-making. I don't think the United States is going to go as far as Europe has in regulating this, but I think organizations might think about creating structures parallel to institutional review boards that regulate the social sciences and medical research, just so that there's some oversight over what's being done with data uh, when you're collecting it and you're running it through predictive analytics, um, and just making sure that, it's, that we're not doing anything that looks bad or that, that clients aren't agreeing to when they agree to give over data. So I think legal services organizations might think about adopting uh, data use policies or establishing data, data committees at their organizations who would uh, review what is being done in-house with creating tech tools that use machine learning or creative uses of the existing attorney-client confidential data that we own and that we process. So I, I think that could be the first way that we apply these, uh, these principles to our own work. And I, after we have uh, reformed ourselves, then I think we can talk about reforming others and going to the courts and working through bar associations to make sure that government agencies that work with unemployment claimants or public benefits claimants are complying with these rules. Um, 
and I think the, the, the Bar Association is a good place to start. I, I made a big point during my presentation of saying that it's the responsibility of attorneys to do this type of work, even though others could. We have, a, under the rules of professional conduct, we have a special role as public citizens to uh, protect the integrity of justice and the, improve the quality of justice. And I think that we need to work systemically in order to do that as this technology changes the, the legal field. Yeah, as attorneys, but in particular in this community, this access to justice community, right, plays a, probably a pretty critical role in making sure that it, there's some sort of equality that is managed throughout this process. And um, I appreciate that. I think you segued really well into data, right? And why, it, why is the quality of the data important? I'm going to ask Abhijit to give us a little more information on why data is important and what those biases that could come out of data could look like. The machine learning algorithms that are being developed are built based on the data that we have. So if there are any um, biases in the data itself, the way it's collected and what is being collected, um, that will be mirrored in the algorithm that is developed uh, from that data set. And, um, and, and becomes even harder to uh, f identify that bias once it's in an algorithm. So uh, th that's, this is the reason why we have to make sure that uh, we are looking out for biases and, and inaccuracies in, in the model it, because um, it, it may it give us decisions or results that were not intended to be. Right, so give us an example. Well, it's not specifically of bias, but an example of why we need these guidelines. Um, the most striking example of why we need these guidelines, in my mind, comes from Michigan, where our unemployment agency was using an automated system to govern unemployment benefits, and most importantly, it was one of their big goals to detect fraud. And uh, the system, as it was implemented, was overzealous in detecting fraud, in that 70% of the cases that it found were actually false positives. Um, it, it alleged and prosecuted fraud, um, where there was actually no fraud. And so um, this is an example of, um, of, of why we need some guidelines around these processes and why we need more people, uh, more representatives at the table designing and implementing these systems to make sure that those types of, of bias and inaccuracies uh, aren't allowed to freely flow. Okay, right. Making sure that we're being representative and equal across all the boards. Even though some of these biases are, are, are non-conscious, right? We just yeah, don't even know that they, it's unintentional and don't exist. Well, I think that this is fascinating and incredibly important for the legal aid community uh, as well as the access to justice community. And I hope that we get some time to talk about this at a later date. And I hope our listeners get a chance to like reach out to you. And if they want to do so, how do they contact you? Jonathan, we'll start with you. They can reach me at jpyle at philolegal.org, J-P-Y-L-E, philolegal.org. I'm on Twitter, at Legal Aid Tech. Angela Tripp, my email address is T-R-I-P-P-A at mplp.org. And if you want to see our slides, um, you can see them at goo.gl slash zero G capital U-F-Z-C. And uh, hopefully we can make that available another way, but you can see all of our um, all of the product of our work there. All right, thanks. We've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please find it and rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. 
Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.